1: Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined, as usual, by THR's chief TV critic and my pal, Dan Feinberg. What's shaking, Dan?
0: Oh, just lots and lots of TV. What's shaking with you, Leslie? Just lots
1: and lots of TV and the Dodgers, you know, same stuff, different day.
0: Yeah, lots and lots of TV and yet sort of a mixed amount of TV news this week, what with it being a slightly shortened week and all of that. Yes, the Labor Day
1: week is a little bit slow, but uh, still lots to get into. Let's get into this week's headlines. Janice Min, the former chief creative officer of The Hollywood Reporter, has departed Jeffrey Katzenberg's short form video startup Quibi after less than a year. CBS has renewed Big Brother for its 22nd season, with Julie Chen Moonves returning as host.
0: Uh, Still produces a shiver up my spine when you say her whole name, but her choice. Yeah.
1: In casting news, Gary Sinise has joined the final season of 13 Reasons Why as a series regular. Mm -hmm. And Lena Dunham-produced HBO Max pilot Generation has enlisted Martha Plimpton.
0: Number one among the 13 Reasons Why Gary Sinise will be joining that show, I have to assume, is money. Yeah.
1: And wrapping up headlines this week, TBS has canceled yet another scripted series, this time The Detour, starring Jason Jones and created by Jones and his wife, Samantha Bee, after four
0: seasons. That's a minor disappointment. I I feel as if that was a show that never really had a huge amount of hype or anything behind it. But it's, it's a good, erratic show. There were some episodes where I'd sit by going, man, that just wasn't really funny. But they tried. And then there were other episodes that made me laugh really, really hard. And I think that Jason Jones and Natalie Z, they were giving really committed really funny performances and uh yeah i'm not sad but i think that a lot more people probably would have enjoyed the craziness of the detour if they'd actually watched it but Yeah,
1: this wasn't something that was on my radar, but my wife watched this one religiously. And this was definitely something that I got into from watching with her. Um, It was very funny.
0: It is. It is an aggressive show. Some shows do not. Most shows, I would say, that we talk about as comedies do not go as aggressively and full bore for laughter as The Detour did, sometimes ineffectively, sometimes very effectively. And yeah, it was a, a show with a fantastic cast, just really, really deep so oh well not not a not a tragedy there's still plenty of tv on the tv but yeah
1: and we're still trying to monitor and figure out what the heck tbs and tnt are doing with their originals uh lots of questions there no execs available for comments so we'll continue to monitor that one well with all that out of the way let's dive into this week's top five
0: number one
1: Leading off, last week we looked back at Summer TV's winners and losers. This week, let's look ahead to some of the most anticipated new and returning shows for September. Dan, you've got the broadcast networks back in action with a ton of new shows across the big four, plus all the returning shows. It's a super crowded premiere week starting September 22nd with the Emmys as the official kickoff. Let's start there. You've got a ton of big bets this broadcast season. ABC has a blackish prequel. Chuck Lorre is back on CBS with a multicam called Bob Hart's Abishola. NBC is looking at Bradley Whitford for a musical comedy called Perfect Harmony. CBS has a new drama from the creators of The Good Wife called Evil, and all of this is in addition to returning favorites like This Is Us and Grey's Anatomy and the final seasons of The Good Place and Modern Family and How to Get Away with Murder and I'm Exhausted and we're only talking about broadcast.
0: What do you think? Yeah, there were a few years where the networks were trying to kind of outsmart premiere week and where... Things were getting spread out all over the schedule, and obviously it makes a difference if, for example, NBC has the Olympics, because then NBC premieres some stuff out of the Olympics. That's
1: summer 2020.
0: Exactly. So, you know, there are obviously contingencies. It's not like this is a permanent thing. But yeah, everything is basically starting after the Emmys on the 22nd, and those— last few days of September as we move from the Emmys into Premier Week into the Jewish High Holidays. We'll figure out our schedule on that one. They're crazy, and I have no idea how to keep up with it. This is, I would say, not as bad a broadcast TV slate as last year. I think last year was about as bad as it could get. But I don't know that there's definitely not a a breakout high quality show, but I think there are three or four shows where I can imagine if they go forward and improve, could become solid shows. So, so at this point, you've yeah. seen
1: pretty much early, early looks at pilots, right? Yeah.
0: Basically, all I've seen is, is one episode of everything. And some shows will come up with the second episode before we actually do reviews. Most shows probably will not, unfortunately, which is just how this stuff goes. So I'm going to be writing a lot of reviews with the exact same hook, which is maybe if this happens and this happens, it'll get good and not my favorite thing to do to basically write the exact same review over and over again. But I can see, for example, how Mixed-ish could become a really good, appealing show. It took grownish for example, a while to find itself. So who knows? I think there are a lot of good elements in Perfect Harmony. There are a lot of good elements in Evil. There are a lot of good elements even in The Unicorn, which I think is a show that is not in any way there yet in its first episode. But it could suddenly become good uh so yeah i think i think i'm going to be saying the exact same thing a lot of times as we go into september that it's not a clear winner just yet it's not an out-of-the-box hit it's not going to revitalize broadcast television this is not one of those development seasons that has a a lost and a desperate housewives there is no lost or desperate housewives this season again but some of the stuff could get good.
1: Yeah, I mean, Perfect Harmony seems like it's fun. I mean, Bradley Whitford leading a church choir. With You've got Anna Camp in that. I'm very curious how people will respond to Bob Hart's Abishola. I mean, Chuck Lorre is a proven hitmaker. This is his follow-up to The Big Bang Theory. It's Multicam starring Billy Gardell, who, with whom he worked with on Mike and Molly. We talked about that a lot out of Upfronts. I think, you know, look, it's it's hard to bet against proven producers like Lorre and, and The Kings and... You know, ABC's got a lot. Is taking a lot of risks. You know, they picked up *Emergence* with Alison Tolman, which was developed for NBC, and then they've got Colby Smulders starring in *Stumptown*, which is based on a graphic novel. They've got. You know, we've talked extensively about their push to bring women back, but look, there's there's a lot going on, and, and that doesn't even include the CW, which is actually kind of smart in in that they hold out for their premieres until October, so they're avoiding the fray and they just start when things have already gotten underway. So.
0: Yeah, em- *Emergence* and *Stumptown* are two others that are in that I can imagine how by episode four or five these shows could be good similarly I can just as easily imagine how by episode three I could have checked out of them entirely so honestly it would behoove the broadcast networks to make as many episodes as they possibly can available because I want to give these things the chance Then the only reason why you're not going to give me multiple episodes of a couple of these things is if you know darn well, they're just not going anywhere good.
1: Yeah. And there's no reason for that. I mean, a lot of these the shows that are premiering in the fall. Look, these pilots were produced at the end of last season. So, you know, April and May, these pilots were cast and and shot, you know, tinkered with, you know, some there were obviously some recastings like Mixed-ish. Obviously, Mark Paul Gosselaar replaced Anders Holm. Uh,
0: Jake Johnson Um, on mm -hmm. Stumptown and, and both of those cases, the Finished pilots with the new cast were available for press tours. So,
1: right, and these sh- these shows exist. have been in production, you know, since the end of May or beginning of June. I mean, there's no reason that that we can't you can't get multiple episodes. Give for- me
0: more episodes of stuff, people. Take up my time. I'm offering it to you as charity.
1: Yeah, that's a big one, Dan. Let's talk about cable. So you've got it. HBO has the final season of The Deuce from David Simon and Room 104. Audience Networks Mr. Mercedes from exec producer David E. Kelly is coming. FX and Ryan Murphy go back in time to 1984 with the new season of anthology American Horror Story. Comedies Mr. In-Between and It's Always Sunny also return on FX. Comedy Central South Park is back after a long hiatus. And Epics has Godfather of Harlem. And then rounding it up, you know, let's let's throw in a fun one here. A Very Brady Reunion on HGTV.
0: That is very different from the other shows you yeah. listed previously. Though, but, I mean, Lessa. look, it's in
1: the news. It's it's we're, you know, we're talking extensively about this.
0: No, again, there there's no lack of of options. A lot of those things you just listed, of course, are not going to be four quadrant hits a lot of them are things that are coming back and pretty much have the audience they have uh the you know the amusing thing about mr mercedes and we might touch on it a little bit later in the the critics Corner, is that it effectively is a different show each season just with brendan gleason as the centerpiece uh and jerelle jerome but also so it's got those things to it but if you haven't watched seasons one and two you're probably not going to tune in for season three also you probably don't know what audience network is you're not going to suddenly tune into the deuce for its final season if you haven't been watching previously i can't wait to see that final season i i hope it is good mr in between only six episodes you can catch up on it and american horror story as always i am looking forward to watching two to three episodes and getting tired of and stopping watching but i am definitely looking forward to what appears to be a summer camp style slasher premise this season i can get amused by that for Three Two episodes, episodes yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Not, not to be confused with the, what was that show that uh, the creators of Once Upon a Time did for Freeform that had basically the same concept.
0: I, I prefer more to think about Harper's Island, the the go, classic too, yeah. one person gets killed off every week series on CBS that only. 50 people remember but those 50 people remember it fondly that was a that was a crazy silly show
1: yeah well let's go to streaming here's where things get really crowded as if it weren't weren't already netflix has uh ryan murphy's first ever streaming series the politician and the island as well as limited series unbelievable drama criminal documentary inside bill's brain and the returns of disenchantment and the ranch Amazon's got animated comedy Undone and tra- and the transparent wrap up musical movie with, of course, without Jeffrey Tambor. And then Hulu recently launched Untouchable and Wu-Tang, an American saga, which we talked about last week in the Critics Corner. Dan, it's just it's so crowded. God, like, I don't even so know tired. where you're
0: going to find time to watch all this. Stuff. And the thing you're not mentioning also is that between the Toronto International Film Festival and the Tribeca TV Festival, there are around 10 shows that are sneaking early for festival audiences and because thr is the marvelous trade that we are we like to review stuff early so uh, i'm currently mostly reviewing stuff that is not going to be premiering until october and november just because it's premiering at a film festival
1: and And dickinson is at the tribeca tv festival (laughs) from apple which we haven't even seen yet but it's, it's world premiering there
0: something from apple with no premiere date mind you it should also be noted that you haven't even mentioned that we have ken burns's country 16 hours of ken burns delving deep into the roots of country music 16 hours my god there's a lot of tv this month and a lot of the stuff that i've already seen is good we'll talk next week because we're a week early on it uh but both unbelievable and undone which sound like they should be part of the same platform are very interesting shows and uh yeah, I'll be looking forward to talking and writing about those. But I assume some of these others will be interesting. And then the island looks like it might be a really horrible guilty pleasure, but I, I might be there for that. So, yeah,
1: same. <laughs> but yeah, it's just it's just such an insane landscape. You know, I, I get, you know, that broadcast is beholden to their specific model where you have premiere dates and you, you launch in September and you end in May, you know, but like you pepper in all these cable and streaming shows in, in the middle of all of that. And it just it's just impossible for anything to cut through.
0: But it was it it all made sense that it had meaning fall premiere season when summer was a doldrum. Then you could go, okay, here, you know, if you've been just watching repeats and maybe outside playing baseball in the summer or whatever here, here comes new TV. Yay. We can all get excited about this. I remember being excited when new TV was coming. Same. But how is it possible to get excited that, oh, my gosh, there's new TV as opposed to last week?
1: Yeah, I mean, I still get emails like for your fall TV preview, you know, and uh, like there is no fall TV preview. There's no summer TV preview. TV is year round. It, It has been for a long time and it will continue to get more so in the coming in the weeks ahead, in the months ahead, because. There's a, a, a tremendous demand for content. Look, I mean, we don't know when Apple is launching, but we do know Disney Plus is coming out in you know the middle of November. That's just going to multiply everything because they're going to have a ton of, of shows that are uh, including like The Mandalorian with, in the Star Wars universe that are available at launch. And it's just like it used to be where around the holidays, you don't get anything. But now, I mean, look, if, if your family's not talking about Disney Plus on Thanksgiving, Everyone's going to be talking about it. I mean, it's just there is no quiet time of year anymore.
0: Our families may be different. I am reasonably confident that my family is not going to be discussing Disney Plus at Thanksgiving. I
1: am in a family of loving and amazing nerds. It's incredible. We are all pop culture junkies and there's Star Wars and there's Marvel and there's Disney. And that is literally
0: all of us. my my parents (laughs) are are pop culture consumers at a very high level, I just don't believe, I I would be really surprised if they ever began a conversation with me with, so the Mandalorian is coming. I would, that would make me amused, but instead they would really just ask me why I haven't reviewed FAUDA.
1: (laughs) There you go. Well, that's going to take us right into our second topic. Batting second, let's take a look at the week in streaming news.
0: Number two. This is what we call a catch-all segment covering the headlines we didn't mention in headlines, specifically on the streaming front. So we are gonna start the segment over at Apple. Apple, you might know them from such things as your iPhone and your iWatch, and TV shows that may someday exist, but currently have only had brief bad trailers. So in this week's Apple news, They have scrapped the drama Bastards, which I think I vaguely remember that they were doing, starring Richard Gere as one of two Vietnam veterans who go on a shooting spree to kill millennials. (laughs) That sounds... Fraught. Uh, it's the first scrapped show under video heads Zach Van Amberg and Jamie Ehrlich, and the second overall after graphic drama Vital Signs, which I believe was put into development like 17 years ago and yeah. has been in the can for roughly that long. And
1: will remain in the can for as the foreseeable future. I mean... We reported this exclusively, and there's a lot of things going on at Apple, some of which we're privy to, a lot that we're not. We don't know when they're launching. We don't know how much it's going to be. We don't know how episodes will roll out. There's a lot of rumors about all of those topics. Nothing has been confirmed. Apple has not publicly said anything about any of its plans outside of that disastrous event that they had up in Cupertino a couple of months ago. But this is a show that was probably caught up in an executive decision where this was a show that was edgy. You, ha- It's from Howard Gordon and Warren Light. Light is the current showrunner on Law & Order SVU. He has a relationship with Zach and Jamie, going back to his time with an overall deal when both of those execs were still running Sony TV. But this is a dark drama. You've got two Vietnam vets who are on a shooting spree, killing millennials. First of all, if we learn nothing from the Heathers of it all, is that there's no good time to air a massively graphic drama like this it's not going to happen and on top of that there's a lot of rumors there was a great wall street journal story a few months back about apple's push and what they were looking for in terms of content and that they didn't want to take anything risky that's what i keep continuing to hear as well is that this isn't a show when you're thinking about aspirational stuff (laughs) like you've got you know Haley steinfeld playing a lesbian emily dickinson i'm not saying that that's completely aspirational but I know that two Vietnam bets killing millennials is definitely the opposite definition of that. So somewhere along the lines, there was this different shift in strategy that was probably not communicated to these producers at the time when the show was picked up, and that probably happened midway through the writing process. There were some notes. Some people liked the notes. Some people didn't want to listen to the notes. Warren Light left. Howard Gordon and Fox 21 stuck by the original pitch. Apple was like, we can't make that show. And that's what happens when a show gets killed. So uh, I think my lead on this one was Apple has its first bad Apple. And that's the case here. So Vital Signs was, of course, developed before Zach and Jamie got to Apple. There's no way that that's going to see the light of day.
0: No way. <laughs> Look, if, it, if any company has the money to simply throw several million dollars down a dark hole and never worry about it, it is definitely Apple. Uh, and and see-
1: Apple paid a significant penalty on Bastard, so.
0: Yeah, and, you know, coming after the least temporary cancellation or pulling of the hunt from movie theaters, yeah, it all makes sense. So on the the next streaming service front, we have Hulu, which is reteaming with MGM on a prequel sequel thingy uh, to The Handmaid's Tale, which is based on Margaret Atwood's The Testament the disney platform, referring to Hulu there, is in talks with Bruce Miller, uh, who is the, of course, showrunner on Handmaid's Tale, about how The Testaments can become quote-unquote an important extension to the Emmy-winning drama starring Elizabeth Moss. The book is coming out September 10th. Should we be at all surprised that this project is on Hulu where it would seem logical to go?
1: Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, why would they take something that's in the Handmaid's Tale universe to a different outlet? Even with Disney controlling it, we know that Hulu will be the more adult of all of Disney's digital platforms. It makes sense to do it. There's an existing audience there. MGM and Hulu have a joint overall deal with Bruce Miller. Like, of course they're going to do it.
0: The fact that we have a Handmaid's Tale universe is a little bit disconcerting, almost as disconcerting as the fact that our actual universe all too frequently resembles the Handmaid's Tale universe. It's all vaguely uncomfortable. And
1: speaking of universes, uh, that's what we call a bad transition. Hulu has scrapped plans for the Grisham universe, which would have comprised two shows, The Rainmaker and Rogue Lawyer. They would have both been interconnected. They shared a writer's room. Both would have been able to function independently of one another and, of course, be tied in directly together. So if you wanted to watch one but not the other, it doesn't matter because it's gone. It's not happening. This is, of course, the biggest loss so far for Michael Seisman, who was set to serve as showrunner on both and he recently saw his Disney Plus series, The Book of Enchantment, the show about Disney villains, also be scrapped at that platform. So rough couple of weeks for Sidesman.
0: Uh, should we feel any different about how it looks on Hulu to be pulling a plug on a show like this, as opposed to Apple, since basically we're now in the uh, streaming networks pulling the plugs on things? I mean,
1: our... <laughs> you know, look, there's a lot of questions that we don't know about why, because when you think about a Grisham universe, I mean, that's a slam dunk, right? You've got
0: it's a slam dunk 20 years ago
1: but it's everyone in this era wants big ip with recognizable names attached john grisham is one of the most widely read authors people know exactly what you're going to get with a show that's got john grisham's name on it and hulu won the rights for this in a massive bidding war multiple outlets were pursuing this and now it's not happening so more info to come on that as we continue to investigate
0: um, and I'm how- still old enough to remember uh, Josh Lucas in The Firm. So I know that... I do remember Josh Lucas in The what Firm. What I'm saying is John Grisham is not the slam dunk that he was in 1998.
1: Right. But in a world with of 500 scripted shows and counting and where every platform wants big IP and is paying millions and millions of dollars to get it, this, is, this one's surprising to me. I,
0: I feel like probably, though, if this was just a showrunner concern someone else can do it, you know, because I don't think I I don't
1: know what what happened here. This is something we will still continue to report on. But look, we know what happened with bastards at Apple. This one, we don't know why they're pulling the plug. So.
0: So moving over to Amazon, we have a little bit more quote unquote news regarding the Lord of the Rings TV series. Uh, Will Poulter, who people will know from Midsummer or Bandersnatch, is going to be one of the stars playing. I don't know. He will probably share scenes with other actors like i'm not exactly sure who who will be playing characters like i don't don't know know who they are (laughs) um how frustrating is this for you as someone who attempts to cover news to be covering news on a tv show where no one is saying anything about anything and yet periodically these little leaks come out
1: I mean, I'm used to it. I've covered Shondaland for a long time. And what used to be the norm there was they would announce an actor booking a role. And then they just did this with how to get away with murder casting where it's like, here's someone flashy who's joining the show. We're not going to say how many episodes. We're not going to say what character they're playing. Like, okay, so it's a tweet and not a story or not even that. You know, it's I mean, look, I get it with Lord of the Rings because every single thing around this show is being kept under lock and key. It's insane. But also not surprising, this is how that, you know, like they're treating it like it's a J.J. Abrams movie or a Star Wars movie. And it makes sense. They've spent $250 million just on global rights alone. Just the the rights to do it. That's not including casting or production or building sets or costumes or anything. And this is gonna be a massively expensive show. So it makes sense that they're keeping this one under wraps.
0: And speaking of massive, there are, as ever, 753 pieces of varying sized Netflix news. Leslie, just run through absolutely everything because, as always, really, we need a dedicated reporter to only be covering the Netflix beat.
1: I mean, that's what my job feels like some weeks where, you know, look, we're in the middle of broadcast development season and I don't even track broadcast development anymore because you're buying a script, whereas Netflix is buying an entire season of a show. So, you know, you got to figure out where you spend your time. And for me, it's covering Netflix. So (laughs) looking at at what the streamers doing, Kevin James is going to return to television as a star of a multi-camera comedy called The Crew, which is exec produced by NASCAR. Uh, the former King of Queen star extends his relationship with the streamer after a stand-up special and a couple of comedy features. And look, this is just another bankable broadcast TV star who's moving to the streamer. I'd be very curious what his talent deal is, is worth for this one, especially considering he's exec producing it, too. I mean, he was a... Lock on broadcast. He remains one of the most sought after actors on the small screen, and here he is, the latest to, to go to Netflix.
0: And it reunites him, corporately speaking, with uh, longtime collaborator and partner Adam Sandler. So it's it's all just part of the extended Netflix Sandler verse. And I look forward to seeing who will play his wife in the first season of the show and then be abruptly killed off.
1: Yeah, it's it won't be, what's her name? Aaron, Aaron Hayes. Aaron Hayes.
0: But it might be Lea Remini. Well, yeah,
1: heard she's available now. So. Elsewhere, Grace and Frankie has been renewed for its seventh and what will be its final season. Netflix has upped the usual 13-episode order to 16, and that is just enough for the Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin comedy to end its run topping Orange is the New Black as Netflix's longest-running original series. That so, feels
0: like a slap in the face to Orange is the New Black. <laughs>
1: which was produced by Lionsgate and not in-house. Well, I mean, then again, Grace and Frankie is produced by Skydance. So both of these shows come from outside suppliers. I don't know where that extra episode thing came from, because every other season that that, that Grace and Frankie has done has been 13. And this is an, at a time when Netflix is looking for for shorter orders. Like there's no episode count for The Kevin James Show, but it wouldn't surprise me if it were like something like eight or 10. Nothing is getting 13 anymore. And here, here we go. This one's getting 16.
0: When I think of Kevin James, I do not think of uh, boutique production. I, I am thinking The Kevin James Show will probably be about 100 episodes per season. I, I'm not <laughs> it's sure it's a 90-10 am exactly why we why, why don't we bring back more of those I missed the 90-10 that was they were bad just because every single one of them was horrible uh and and none of them actually paid off other than I guess the Tyler Perry ones weren't there Tyler Perry ones that were better yeah, or more I don't know if that rather. was a
1: 90-10 model, but something different that he was doing for OWN. But uh, yeah, he's not doing those anymore. So
0: let's see. And then, as if there's not enough news, I believe there were about 700 pieces of Ryan Murphy news at Netflix this week.
1: Yes, Ryan Murphy was on the cover of Time magazine this week and revealed a few new projects that he's working on under his 300 million dollar deal with Netflix. I just want to say that again because I think some of these eye-popping deals are so frequent that you forget how much they're worth 300 million dollars so the latest projects that he's doing in addition to the politician which is still for 20th tv but his new projects that will be owned and produced and released exclusively for, by netflix there is a chorus line miniseries a limited series about halston with ewan mcgregor set to star as the designer and an, a 10-part andy warhol docuseries and if that wasn't enough, Murphy is also reteaming with Jessica Lang for a project about Marlene Dietrich.
0: But, Leslie, what if it was enough?
1: No, it's not. I mean, it's never enough. I mean, you got to get your money's worth. $300 million, that's a lot of money. So, uh, yeah, we don't know if the Jessica Lang Marlene Dietrich is a TV show or a movie. But, look, I mean, that sounds like a win to me.
0: I so. think A chorus line is a... Great musical, but I have never once looked at a chorus line and thought, man, I wished it was five times longer. That's strange. And anything else on the Netflix front?
1: One thing you may have missed over the Labor Day holiday is that Netflix is using a three-week release model for its upcoming singing competition called Rhythm and Flow. And that one's really designed to protect the winner so they're going to do this in different rounds so think of it as like if this were american idol you would have the auditions in the one batch of episodes and you know the first performances in a second batch and then the results will be in the third batch so that's basically the strategy that netflix is taking so there'll be multiple episodes released over a three-week period
0: that sounds like an interesting potential change to the netflix model and that also sounds like a transition
1: yes dan up third let's go to the mailbag
0: number three Our first question this week comes from listener Simon, who writes, is Netflix going to drop its binge model anytime soon?
1: To be clear, no, it won't. Um, So like we said, Rhythm and Flow is releasing the way that it is because of what it is. It's a singing competition and they're trying to protect the winner and they're trying something new. And it's because of what the show is. It's because of the format of the show. But a lot of people have noticed that there are some acquired shows that are unspooling weekly on Netflix. These are acquired content and shows that are not netflix originals but something that is that they're picking up like uh, the new season of the great baking show that is released one episode at a time because that's what they're getting from their uk supplier this isn't something where they're saying hey we know people love the show let's do it week one week at a time that's not the case and netflix even responded to someone on twitter and saying as much that this is not a change in strategy their binge model is not going
0: anywhere well they still also do the Shows that they've been struggling with in the not exactly variety, but kind of half hour, uh, not late night again, but comedy format in the God, I still miss the Michelle Wolf show, but uh, like
1: Patriot Act, like Patriot right.
0: Act with Hassan Minhaj, which is a really good smart show and that people don't talk about at all and that continues to be the problem with these weekly shows that netflix does is that they simply aren't getting any traction whatsoever and it's too bad because patriot act is covering some really good topics in fairly smart ways and
1: no one talks about it definitely one of the genres that netflix has struggled to cut through in. So
0: our next question comes from listener Lynn in Atlanta who wants to know how long networks like NBC, Fox, Freeform, and FX will stick with Hulu now that it's part of the Disney fold.
1: Well the answer I think will continue to develop as NBC works out the plans for its forthcoming streaming service. Let's stick with Freeform and FX and and break it out that way. Those are both owned by Disney. Disney controls Hulu. So I think what we've learned so far is that Hulu will be the more adult oriented of disney streaming outlets so disney plus will be the family friendly place so with all the animated disney movies from the vault which i'm very excited about like i mean get me that lady in the tramp original over the the new movie i'll I'll watch the new movie but the new movie looks horrible it's creepy the dogs are creepy it looks just awful why that's That's another segment dan it really
0: is i don't i don't get the whole thing i don't where where is the magic in what they're doing with this live action nonsense okay just, continue just,
1: just go watch the original i but will in, but in terms of hulu we know that they will be the home for fx content freeform i think it will be a case-by-case basis on what stuff of theirs winds up on disney plus or on hulu it wouldn't surprise me to see shows like the bold type which can kind of skew a little bit older um even though it's made for millennials it wouldn't be it wouldn't surprise me to see that one stay on hulu I think all of the Disney stuff will remain on one of those two platforms. As for NBC, when Comcast sold out its remaining portion to Hulu, there was a stipulation where it could share content with both its streaming platform and on Hulu and have the right to take it back exclusively for the Comcast platform. That's something that we'll continue to monitor. I think we'll probably know more about that streaming platform in the next couple of weeks. And Fox, you know, look, they're an independent broadcast network now any deal that they get to sell their content elsewhere. I mean, right now a lot of their new fare is produced by 20th Century Fox TV, aka the Disney owned studio. So, which means you know, all of those new shows could either go to one of either Hulu or Disney Plus. I mean, it would make sense for a lot of that stuff to go to Hulu, but that will all remain to be seen in the next coming months ahead. So,
0: God, every single word you say there kind of brings up dollar signs in my mind it's as I have to figure out all about right what now. things I need to subscribe to and where my money is going to be going. Yeah, because,
1: you know, the, look, SPOD rights are, an ex- are a big reason that a lot of shows were able to get made in the first place. I mean, I go back to the under the dome model that CBS implemented a few summers ago. That's a very expensive show that they were able to make because they sold the streaming window ahead of the premiere to Netflix, which with that money helping to actually produce a short order show like under the dome to air in the summer when networks are not paying millions of dollars to produce high-end content just because no one's watching in the summer so now you're seeing all these networks and studios take back their shows so that's what happened with the office that's what happened with friends and, and that's what what will continue to happen in the months ahead as, as the streaming wars really continue to intensify moving on to our next question listener randy wants to know dan Namely, why are you so dismissive about Star Trek? He detects an attitude that Star Trek doesn't count when it comes to the peak TV landscape and that it's only a small niche franchise for nerds.
0: I don't really feel like that is my attitude. I I don't. I mean, I gave a, a very positive review to the new Star Trek show when it came out. I haven't necessarily kept up with it as much, but not because I don't respect it. Uh, I, I think... I sometimes get a little bit mind boggled by the number of different potential Star Trek franchises that there could be in the CBS All Access universe, and the idea that that wait,
1: so Discovery, Picard, Lower Decks, Short Treks, Uh, what's the one with with uh, Michelle Yeoh? There's a fifth show. I think that's five so far.
0: Yeah, that I think that is and I wouldn't say I'm dismissive of it, just minorly incredulous. Just the question of, is that a business model? But that's not the same as being dismissive of the franchise. Similarly, I hear something like Michael Shabon being the showrunner on one of these shows. And I'm curious. I'm intrigued, but I'm not again dismissive of that i'm i'm interested i don't know i yeah i don't feel like i'm dismissive of anything star trek related it is not my favorite thing in the world i I can definitely acknowledge that that i am not a trekkie trekker trek person as an overall principle but i'm curious i I'll, i'll check into picard when it premieres by all means no not dismissive at all darn it i i just you know, I just sound dismissive of things because I mean, it's my tone. <laughs> yeah, but it's
1: also like you're absolutely right. Is having five Star Trek shows enough to sustain an entire streaming platform? And, and obviously there's other content on CBS All Access, The Good Fight. There's Twilight Zone. They've got a library of content as well. But their calling card is Star Trek, especially when you do five shows. So, and they refused to, you know, they were asked at TCA a couple of months ago if they knew just how many people subscribe to that platform specifically for Star Trek, which would explain why they're investing millions and millions of dollars in multiple shows. They declined comment.
0: Yeah, they would, So they won't tell us. So we don't really know if it's a business model. Thus, all we can be is curious, incredulous, but not not dismissive or I don't. Think I'm. Why, why would I be dismissive of a of a universe that employs people like Michelle Yeoh and Michael Shabon and Patrick Stewart? And th- those are those are good people who automatically demand a certain amount of respect, if not necessarily.
1: And Kurtzman yeah. is good people. L.A. native, too. OK. Yeah. Moving on to our final question for the segment. Listener Darius wants to know what aspect of our respective jobs that we enjoy the most. Dan specifically, he asked, putting on your critical hat about what works or what doesn't work. Is that something that you love? What, what are the best things about having to watch so much TV?
0: I like putting on my critical hat about what works and what doesn't work. And I think a lot of people assume that critics love tearing things to shreds and writing negative reviews. I mean,
1: and- negative reviews are really fun to read.
0: They're And they're fun to write sometimes, uh, but I don't know that I would ever put that as the top thing about my job. I much more enjoy the endless repetition of telling people to watch the same five shows over and over again that I know probably most of them aren't watching. I and haven't
1: watched Raimi yet, Matt. Just I'm going to watch it. It's on my list, Dan.
0: This is what I'm saying is listeners should have watched Rami. They should have watched Lodge 49. They should Rami. have...
1: I, i can't even say it right damn
0: it which clearly means i need to be repeating it to you more frequently that you need to watch it no that that to me i'm much more enjoy being told by somebody after hearing you say 15 times i needed to watch this show i watched it and i loved it than being told ha 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 that was a really funny review you wrote of something horrible i you know sure i like hearing that but whatever no i would always much rather hear from people my god I loved this show that I had hadn't thought was for me and you repeated 75 times that I needed to watch it thank you for doing that I love this show now that that is my favorite part of doing this is when someone thinks something isn't for them gets convinced and really loves something because that that makes me feel like whatever I'm doing has value as opposed to just telling someone that something stinks and not to watch it that's what you know I may be saving you 15 minutes but I'm not giving you anything good so so that is my favorite part of my job what is your favorite part of your job leslie
1: i love doing this podcast dan it's a lot of fun um getting to bounce and pinball uh different things with you and you know breaking down why a show works or didn't work from a business point of view or network strategies are always fascinating like you know the fact that we don't know the apple strategy and you know we said at the top of the show that you know tnt and tbs we don't know exactly what's going on over there i mean these are all things that are interesting to me And showrunner interviews. It's a big reason why we're doing so many of these showrunner spotlights. I, I love uncovering new voices. I always go back to, you know, Stephen Falk, who created You're the Worst, wrote this amazing column on his blog years ago when the show that he did for NBC called Next Caller, you know, they picked it up to series. He moved his entire life from L.A. to New York to do the show. And then they scrapped the show before it premiered. And he wrote this scathing column, which was just you never see this kind of honesty from people in writing, just because it's a tough industry, right? You know, you don't want to burn a bridge. You never know who you're going to work with when execs move over, etc. And I always remember the level of honesty in that essay. And that got me to interview him at TCA when he came around with You're the Worst. And I just remembered thinking that that was such a bold essay to write It got me to interview him about the experience and moving on from that. And then I actually went home and watched You're the Worst and fell in love with the show. So it's fun the way industry works. You know, you never know what shows will speak to you for what reason, because I would have never. That wasn't a show like it had no marketable stars at the time. I didn't know who anyone was. You know, Stephen Fogg had been on Orange is the New Black and Weeds. No one really knew who he was at the time. And that wound up being one of my favorite shows. So it's always wonderful to uncover people who have a voice and aren't afraid to use it. So,
0: ooh, that too could count as a transition.
1: Up next, it's time for another showrunner spotlight.
0: Number four. This week in our spotlight, we're thrilled to welcome Karen Gist, the showrunner of ABC's Blackish prequel, Mixed Dish. Welcome, Karen. Thank you. Thanks
1: for having me. Excited to be here. Karen, who practiced family law for three years before pursuing a writing career, started her time in Hollywood as a writer on The CW's Girlfriends and counts One Tree Hill, House of Lies, Revenge, Grey's Anatomy, and showrunning Empire Offshoot Star. She is also co-writing the screenplay for Sister Act Three for Disney+. Karen, getting started, what made you want to give up your law career and head to Hollywood?
2: I was bored out of my mind being a lawyer and it just, and it wasn't, it just wasn't a good fit for me at all. It wasn't feeding my soul in any way. And I was young enough to kind of take a chance and do something and follow something that I wanted to do that I'd always kind of dreamt about. So I decided to give it a shot.
0: Well, was that a situation where you felt like you were going to law school and becoming a lawyer for certain kind of respectability reasons, but you'd always dreamed of someday getting into writing?
2: No, no. and Actually, I, well, the first part is a yes. So I did go to law school because it's kind of the expected thing to do. At the time, it was either medical school or law school. And I just hadn't given any real thought to my life other than being a student. And I decided to go to law school. And I always say law school is really fun. There were lots of happy hours. And, you know, Allie McBeal was on at the time. So I kind of had this, <laughs> this fantasy idea of what practicing law would be. But then when I got out here to L.A., to start practicing, it just quickly became clear that that wasn't the path for me. And then I started, once I was out in LA, started thinking about other options and actually fell in love with the idea of writing for television while out here. Uh, Once it was presented to me, it wasn't something that was even on the table, um, really in Washington DC or in Atlanta. So I fell in love with it kind of later.
0: One thing that strikes me looking at your resume is that it is wildly varying between drama and comedy, which is so unusual for a business that really always prefers to pigeonhole people. And I have to imagine there are some people out there who would have been perfectly happy to have you just writing on legal procedurals forever. How did you avoid getting pigeonholed, I guess?
2: Well, I never wanted to write on a legal procedural. So I I avoided that like the play. I left law for a reason. It just didn't interest me. So um, I didn't want to, to go after my dream job just to end up doing something similar. And in terms of Riding the line between comedy and drama, I was just lucky enough to be able to do that. I started, I came up on my first show as girlfriends and that was a comedy, but it did have some dramatic elements. It was more of a dramedy at the time. And then I was able to move over and start doing one hour on One Tree Hill and have just been really lucky to be able to kind of go back and forth depending on the project. I think it's important not to let anyone pigeonhole you, even though it's really easy in this business but if you keep your samples in order and just keep putting yourself out there for both, I, I do think it's possible.
1: Yeah, and you know, you're you on Mixed-ish, now you're back to working with Kenya Barris and Tracy Ellis Ross, with whom you yes. both worked on, on Girlfriends. What was it like starting out with that and how have, has your relationship with Kenya changed over the years? And you know, now that he's grown into this, this huge brand with this big Netflix overall deal and an, an entire-ish
2: universe? I'm, well, I'm so proud of him for all that he's accomplished and Tracy as well. And, you know, we came up in the, the, like the college of girlfriends. So (laughs) it's really nice to see how everyone has, how their, the careers have blossomed and grown. People are, this people are people. So the same Kenya and the same Tracy that I knew, um, coming up are that they're the core of who they are still the same so that's really nice too to see that this business hasn't really changed anyone
0: leslie mentioned the ish universe and it's kind of funny because it's among the i would say it's among the more unlikely franchises currently in our media universe how do people within the ish universe define kind of what that brand is
2: That's a good question. I think it's the shows are so different, but they all come down to pushing the envelope with in terms of having social commentary, having a grounded point of view coming from the place of character. So while the shows have a very different tone, it all comes back to what's the what's the relatable human experience and how specificity is really important in storytelling.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, ABC now has two family comedies set in the 80s with, of course, mixed dish joining the Goldbergs. No relation. But when it comes to tackling 80s pop culture, is someone over there keeping tabs on what uh, the Goldbergs is doing? And how does that in- impact the way that you address and-, and want to address pop culture within the show?
2: Well, we do keep tabs on what they're doing, but we, we're we not approaching the show from kind of a, 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 a way of just addressing pop culture. Our stories are coming from, again, the specificity of the characters and being biracial or being um, other in a time in the 80s. And so while we want the show to feel immersive and be part of that time, the stories are not coming, they're not commenting on that time, so to speak, but how our characters would have been back then, as a biracial girl, or as a woman who a black woman entering the workforce, or, you know, a a guy who was privileged, but then decided to change his whole life around and move to a commune. And now he's back in the in the excess of the 80s. And so we're using that world, but it still comes from a place of, of character. That's a little bit uh, not just uh, kind of a social comment on like '80s pop culture.
0: Well, structurally, grownish and blackish have taken kind of a a issue of the week approach. Is that what mixed dishes is, is planning on doing as well?
2: It it does. We we do um, try to have a thesis statement at the at the top of the show and pull that through our characters and see how they change and grow and the the approach to story is that this is rainbow johnson in 2019 or 2020 telling a story that happened to her as a 12 year old girl in 1985 so there is a lesson that she learned a reason she's telling this episode or this story and that is that's kind of the way in to all of our episodes
0: well does it make it harder though that you're kind of tackling Ostensibly current events, but you're doing it through a period prism. Does it does it make it easier to approach things, or or harder to approach things?
2: I think a little bit of both. It makes it easier because we have the cover of the '80s, so some we can get away with some kind of wild commentary, and everyone's like, "Oh yeah, but that was back then." Um, but it's also harder to just make sure that you know we are that that we're not just hitting the audience over the head with an issue just to do it that it has to it has to relate to our characters in a very specific way
1: yeah i mean we touched on this a little bit but you know there continues to be in this peak tv landscape a need to build out these big multiple show universes you know and you've been part of now two of them um, having show run star i'm curious though how does the ish world compare to the experience of empire and star and and is there the same kind of conversation that goes on between like well the show is doing this and how can we operate within this larger universe
2: it's a little different in that that in the ish world we are building it's the prequel to a character that everyone knows and loves so we have to make sure that we're being true to what what has already been beautifully set up in blackish to make sure that that is um that we're building to that woman that we know and love in blackish and with star it was a different conversation around it because yes it was the same universe but it it there was no connection between the shows we tried very hard to keep them separate of course there were a couple of times where we had some crossover but for the most part, they were very distinct shows and different conversations going on, and we didn't have to stay true to anything and track all of that for that was going on in Empire.
0: Well, you've worked over the years with Shonda Rhimes, Lee Daniels, Kenya Barris. Those are, those are three of the most powerful and distinctive voices in writing, producing in TV today. What have you kind of learned in terms of commonalities in their approaches and also primary differences, I guess, in their approaches?
2: The commonality I would think I would say for the three is that they all have very strong and specific points of view and opinions about their projects, which I think is super important just to get a show up on its feet. There has to be one kind of North Star guiding like this is what the brand is. This is what the show is. And there's a passion that comes from that that I enjoy working with. And the the differences, they're all because they're the shows are so those three shows, Grey's Anatomy or, or that universe, they're so different that the differences just come from the material. Um, but the, the similarities are characters that they love and have fallen in love with and and are almost friends of theirs. And you have to take you know, care and kind of writing and building out people who are so alive and in someone else's mind.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that that's interesting to me, I cover as someone who covers development regularly, is you were the first showrunner with a deal at 20th Century Fox to be hired on a show that's produced by ABC Studios. Of course, both studios are now owned by Disney, but that was really the breaking down of the wall. Given all of the Fox and the Disney of it all, how has this experience differed from, say, your experience working for 20th before, like on Star?
2: They, it's. I mean, it's of course it's a different company, and 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 I'm getting the chance to get to meet some different executives and see how things uh, run over on the Disney side. But for the most part, both companies are really supportive of the talent and want the creative to. In lead, they lead with the creative, so there isn't that much of a difference. I think everyone wants the projects, and on both sides, they they put forth projects that they are really passionate about and think have legs. And it, there seems to be a team effort on both sides to kind of get the best version of it done. I was so happy to be able to come over and do, you know, kind of on loan, come over from 20th and and run the show because I thought the show out the gate was something that was super special. And um, I was so excited when Kenya asked me to, to do that. So I'm just happy that they... Were able to make that happen. And I think that goes to show that the company is one big company at the end of the day, um, however long that takes for it to be the thing. But that's the way they're approaching talent, I think, which is nice.
0: What was it like when you were approached to run this? What what did they see in you that made you the right person to handle this? And did you immediately say, OK, I know I can do this? I know I have the story in me to tell this story.
2: I literally got a call from Kenya, and he said, "What do you think about coming back to comedy?" And I asked to see the pilot, and within two minutes, I could see how special it was. So it was literally that fast, and then we made some some phone calls in terms of what I think he maybe there's a trust. I, I don't really know. <laughs> you have to ask ask him. But um, I was just excited that he wanted me to do it, and I think it's a I, I think it's just. A great opportunity but it's kind of a privilege to be able to delve into some of these issues and make them funny and um deal with a character that people really respond to and love
1: yeah and one of the big changes of course from the pilot was the role of rainbow's father uh, which was originally yes. played by anders holm and was recast with mark paul gossler who's also coming back to yes. comedy here um can you talk yeah. us through with the change and what the decision was there
2: the decision was, I was not around for the, in the beginning when they shot the um, the original pilot. And by the time I came on, it was the decision had already been made to kind of look for someone else. And when Mark became an option, we were all very excited because he brings not only the pedigree and the comedy, but he brings a, a heart to the character um, and a chemistry um, that was, that that I think really rounded out the cast. So... Um, I think it was about just finding, you know, again, a, an actor who can carry the weight of a character that's already set up and put a different little spin on it, but also just be true and and honor what's already set up on, on Blackish.
0: And ABC has done such a good job in recent years with. Casting of family shows and kids, it's rather remarkable because kids are difficult, obviously. Yes. You came <laughs> on to a show that already had its young cast in place. What was the learning curve like for you figuring out what these kids could do? I don't want to say and what they couldn't do, but their strengths yeah. mostly.
2: Well, the so the pilot was already shot and the kid that first of all, our kids are just amazing they're extraordinary they're funny and the characters are so well defined in the pilot so there was a that that um specificity to them and the jokes that they could really kind of kill out the gate were, it was very clear and then we're just building on that and finding you know finding more of that while we went on on our feet kind of, um, but the kids are game. There's they're so different. Like you know, Michael Michelle is just a firecracker on and off the set, and Ethan is is just so sweet. And Erica, who plays Rainbow, is just ha- she is kind of the gooey heart center of the show, and that comes across in a, in a really compelling way. Um, that I think will draw people in.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, after I saw the original pilot, this is just ABC hitting the kid casting jackpot yet again. It's just, I don't know what's in the water over there, but they do such an excellent job on this show and everything else. But one other question I had about mixed dishes, look, I, I'm a child of the eighties. Anything that's pretty much set in that decade that features so much music, (laughs) like you guys have is an automatic must watch for me. But can you talk a little bit about the music budget that you guys have? I mean, that stuff isn't cheap. I mean, are you going to continue to lean into that kind of stuff?
2: Yes, definitely. We that was a, a really big piece of the um, puzzle for Kenya. So he went to bat to get a, a, like a pretty decent music budget. And that is what we want. We want the the, the show to talk about all of these issues. But again, it's the, the soundtrack is the 80s. It's set in the 80s. For a reason, there's nostalgia there, and it, it just lends a different feel to it, and it, it's really lovely to. Of course, we we write this we when we write the scripts, we put music in, and then we look for even more music or the right the right songs to to capture the feeling that we want in the scene, and I I think it works really well. One of the things
0: I've found most interesting about Blackish has been watching Kenya and the other writers. Find topics that are not inherently funny and find the the humorous kernel, but also the dramatic kernel in approaching it. What has been the most challenging topics so far that you've broken in terms of making them funny and also getting at what you want to say, the thesis statement, as you said?
2: Well, the thesis, that I think that the trying to approach race from um, both sides of the conversation is just tricky because you want to, first of all, we want the show to include be inclusive of, of everyone watching and not just this binary world of white and black, but of course, that's what we're dealing with, especially in the, in the very beginning, with Rainbow, having come off the commune and race being introduced to her and her brother and sister, um, in a kind of a, the, that's the fish out of water. So in making sure that we're, we're dealing and being true to that. But, but Approaching it in a way that's not off putting. Um, but we, like, like you said, I think Blackish set up the, the standard and I think the bar to make sure that you can approach an issue and it doesn't seem heavy handed, but it makes you think and, um, and you walk away from a, a comedy thinking about, you know, or having learned something that you hadn't really considered before.
1: Well, Karen, thank you so much for joining us. mixed Dish premieres Tuesday, September 24th at 9 p.m. on ABC. Thanks, Karen. Thank you.
0: Number five.
1: As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. This week's new arrivals include The Spy and Elite on Netflix, syndicated daytime shows hosted by Tamron Hall and Kelly Clarkson, The Deuce on HBO, A Very Brady Renovation on HGTV, audience networks mr Mercedes and the return of FX comedy mr in-between Dan what you got
0: Ooh, don't forget about mr. mom on voodoo I'm sorry what mr mom on Voodoo I'm the Walmart streaming platform that really and truly maybe exists Is
1: mr isn't mr. mom that old movie from the 80s with the uh...
0: This is a remake of that starring Hayes MacArthur and Andrea Anders. I swear this exists. That's all I can say about it. I haven't seen a second of it. No one sent me screeners, but I promise you there is something called Voodoo that has something to do with Walmart, and they're doing a show that is called Mr. Mom that has something to do with the movie that starred Michael Michael Keaton Keaton back in the day promise you that exists i'm good (laughs) you probably are so yeah this there there are definitely things to watch this week i am personally looking forward to the third season of the deuce i fell way behind and i haven't watched any of my new screeners but i did over the last week and a half catch up on season two it's a a really good smart thoughtful gritty series about basically the adult underbelly in in Manhattan in the 80s and we're moving deeper into the 80s and I'm looking forward to seeing how David Simon closes that show. I think a lot of people will be talking about The Spy because it was a it wasn't a surprise drop by Netflix, but when they announced it a couple weeks ago, a lot of people hadn't heard about it and it's a period spy thriller from Gideon Raff starring Sasha Baron Cohen in a completely dramatic role. It is a it's a very good dramatic performance. It, it should not be a surprise to anybody that Sasha Baron Cohen is a good actor. I have a lot of reservations about his tendency to go for easy jokes when he's doing his kind of prank comedy thing, but he is a great performer and that does translate it does however take a little while to realize that the character he's playing in this who is entirely serious and straightforward is not going to be making a my wife joke at random times he's just playing it straight with an israeli accent but there is no attempt to get jokes here it is just a good strong dramatic performance and the series itself i've seen two and a half episodes uh colleague tim reviewed it and it's it's a good spy thriller in the Jean Le Carré, Graham Greene vein. And it, it's interesting. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure if I'm going to have time to get through the first season but it, it's worth watching and it's worth watching to see sasha baron cohen's versatility of other stuff uh, i think this close is a is a nice sweet different show on sundance nobody talks about it it's it's a really good show mr in between also kind of slipped through the fx cracks because it was an acquisition and didn't have big stars and mr mercedes the show that i always tell people is is above average and is somewhat stymied by the fact that it's on a network nobody knows if they have so so yeah yeah.
1: technically not really a network but more of a cable provider
0: exactly so you chances are good you probably if you don't have direct tv don't have audience network but they do have an ott platform for it so you could watch it online if you wanted to pay regardless a lot of stuff to watch this week some of it's fairly interesting and next week there's some really good stuff so get ready for that
1: Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood Reporters TV podcast. We'll be back next week, Dan.
0: Well, if you like us, you can subscribe to us on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. If you really like us, please leave a rating. If you really, really like us, leave a review. This is the kind of thing that helps build word of mouth. And...
1: If you have a question for future mailbag segments, please email us at TV's top five. That's the number five at THR.com.
0: And, you know, just come say hi to us on Twitter. We like to hear from listeners and it's always a pleasure. Until next week, Leslie.
1: Until next week, Dan.